Turn your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The third verse said, My times are in thy hand. Why should I doubt or fear? My father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. It's a precious promise that we have from the Lord, that he always does what is good in our lives, even though it may at times be something that causes us pain, uh, causes us sadness. God knows what he's doing, and he's kind and gracious to do what he does. Do you like leftovers? Do you ever eat leftovers? Okay. Maybe because we live in the Midwest, we all do this, but I've, I've met people who refuse to eat leftovers. And if that's you, we have leftover containers. Uh, do you have a drawer of leftover containers? We have one. Uh, it's not uh, out of reach of the kids. It's in a drawer kind of by the, by the sink down to the left, shin height for me, you know, reach over and dump it out, height for the kids. Uh, we don't put our nice bone china dishes down there, right? Those are up in a cabinet. So we're the nice dinner glasses and the mason jars and all of the other things that can be broken, the ceramic serving dishes, our glass mixing bowls, our Starbucks City coffee mugs. Those are out of reach, right? We care about those. We want those to last. If those break, those are a little harder to replace. Maybe we try to fix them. But the, the plastic ones, uh, you find those wherever you go. You can get them. You can replace them for cheap. My wife stores leftovers in whatever container the food best fits in. Sometimes it's the tall, square, clear one with the green lid that we should probably replace. Sometimes it's the medium, hard plastic one with the snap-on lid. Sometimes it's the black circle container with the Olive Garden lid. Okay, Olive Garden has good takeout containers. <laughs> but when I go to the fridge for leftovers, I don't really pay attention to the container that the food's in. Why? Because I want the food. I love my wife's food. That's what matters to me. And I'm glad when there's enough for another day. Those containers don't really matter, except for the fact that they're cheap, they're easy to replace, the real value is in what they carry. The food is the glory of the leftover container, right? Especially when it's Jen's food. You might expect that if God had a great treasure, he would store it in only the most precious and valuable and beautiful containers, right? This is what you do. Maybe your tax information, if you really value that, your social security, your identification, the things that really matter to you, your marriage license, all of these things. Maybe you have a firebox, some kind of fireproof thing or some storage container that you keep locked. It's valuable to you. You keep it in a special place. You would expect that God would do this, but he doesn't. God takes the precious treasure of the gospel and he gives it to people who are weak and fragile and surrounded by difficulties. God puts his glorious message in common clay pots. That's what we come to in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's read, starting at the beginning of the chapter. We looked at this, the first six verses, some time ago. Our text for this evening will begin in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. 
Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death works in us, but life in you. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. In the opening portion of the chapter, Paul has been talking, writing to the Corinthian church about his ministry. He's defending his ministry as an apostle, and he's explaining why he preaches as he does. He's not a great Corinthian orator who's really using tricks of language to try to get people and stir people up to act in ways that they might not otherwise. He's preaching Christ. He's not elevating himself and his own gifts. He's elevating Christ and Christ crucified, Christ Jesus as Lord and Messiah. So after defending why he talks so much about Jesus crucified and risen again, Paul next in verse 7 defends why he himself, as a minister of the gospel, doesn't rise above the problems of life. This passage clearly explains the human weakness of gospel ministers. Why are they so weak? Why aren't they more impressive? Paul had a concern with this church in Corinth. And it's this, that it's wrong and dangerous to assume that those carrying a mighty message must themselves have to be mighty men. You can imagine the Corinthians thinking, if Paul's such a weakling, always suffering, maybe it's because his message isn't that good. Look at this guy over here. No one's opposing him when he preaches. Maybe he's really saying the right things. He looks like he's got it all together. Maybe we should pay attention to him. It's really dangerous to think this way, and Paul's explaining why. In fact, I believe he's saying God himself exposes gospel ministers to numerous hardships to fulfill his wise purposes. It has to be this way. God does this on purpose as part of his plan. You see it in verse 7. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And what does that power look like? I believe in verse 12, it looks like death working in us, but life working in you. Life, the life of Jesus that he imparts to sinners working and bearing fruit in their lives. That's the power of God through the gospel, working through common, weak, insignificant people. 
gospel ministers are weak and they're subject to many hardships in life, not because God is cruel, not because the gospel is ineffective, but because this is the way that God gets all the glory. God exposes gospel ministers to numerous hardships for his glory and the good of his creatures. So when Paul says in verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, I think you could ask the question, why does God entrust the gospel to such unremarkable people? This is Paul's explanation. So that the surpassing greatness of the power of that treasure will be of God and not from ourselves. We have this treasure in earthen vessels or clay pots. This is the reason God entrusts his life-giving message to frail couriers, and it's so that he gets glory. Paul calls himself a disposable container here, and he's talking about the treasure, really the treasure of the gospel. Look at verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Look in verse 6. God said, light shall shine out of darkness. He is the one who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Christ. He's exalting Christ as he preaches the gospel. Paul carries the treasure of the gospel. Jesus is Messiah and Lord, promised Christ, absolute king. He is the one alone who can make men right with God. He alone can free them from their darkness. This is the life-giving message from God. It's the precious treasure that Paul has. So did God put it in some fine gold vessel for safekeeping? No, God put this priceless treasure in a clay pot. These readers, much like a food storage container, they would have known a clay pot. It was something inexpensive, something breakable, something replaceable, very common. They would have stored food in these, grain maybe, sometimes documents, even human waste. It's utterly common. If you had the luxury of having something like a steel pot and it broke, you would fix that. Or if it got stained, you would clean it. But if you broke a clay pot, you just threw it away. If it got stained, you just got a new one. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that he thinks of himself as nothing special. He's utterly replaceable, completely breakable, thoroughly common. He's just a normal guy. There's nothing about Paul that made him indispensable to God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? Because God delights to use weak people for our good and his glory. These Corinthians had this assumption that Paul had to be a great man. They were paying attention to how impressive their pastors and their missionaries were in their eloquence, in their education, in their charisma. They were comparing themselves among themselves, and it mattered to them. They were respecters of persons, as Paul says. And of course, Paul knew a lot because he had been raised a Jew and he had trained to be a Jewish rabbi, but he wasn't a great Corinthian orator. That didn't really matter to these Gentiles who had been converted. They wanted a great Greek speaker. 
And Paul's point here is that God purposely makes his servants weak and fragile, even contemptible in the eyes of the world, so that the power of the gospel comes from God and not from some great trait in the preacher. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel in Romans 1. For what? It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. God delights to use a clay pot rather than a gold chalice. Because when people really marvel at the treasure in the container, that brings him glory. God is not interested in people marveling at the container itself. He wants them to have the treasure that the container carries. And God is wise to do this. Not only does it give him glory, Imagine if we were always enamored with people, where would our confidence be in the power of the gospel? It would not be in the message and in the object of the message, but in the person, the messenger of it. And what happens when that person fails? Our confidence is shattered. Isn't it a remarkable thing when someone who is enslaved to sin and to the devil is made alive with Christ and given a new heart to obey God? Isn't that a remarkable thing when someone's life is transformed? That's what God wants us to marvel at, that the power comes from him. It is by no means a natural thing when someone who is dominated by sin, ruled by fleshly desires, consumed with following sensual lusts, is transformed into someone ruled by Christ, motivated by his love, zealous for good works. That's, that's a transformation that only God can work in someone. The glory must go to God and not to the messenger. Our confidence must rest in God who produces the change rather than the messenger who preached the message. So you see why God entrusts something valuable to people so frail so that the power of the gospel working in people will unmistakably be of God and not from the messenger. But what does this look like? What did it look like for Paul? What kinds of hardships might God allow in the lives of his witnesses? Paul says, we are afflicted in every way. And he enumerates it in four ways. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. He's, when he says afflicted, he's oppressed by those coming after him. He's distressed, but he's not crushed. The idea is being restricted from speaking. He's not silenced. He's distressed, but he's not restricted. Nothing that's happening to him externally forces him to close his mouth. God sustains him. We are perplexed, but not despairing. He's often at a loss as to what to do when people are rejecting his message. But he's not despairing. He's not giving up. He's not losing heart. And this isn't external. This is internal. There's a pressure inside him that I can't do this. People won't respond. But he's not getting up. Why? Because the power is not of him. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. The idea of persecution is actually he's hunted he's being chased and pursued 
by countless unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. But what? He's not forsaken. God never abandons him. God never deserts him. God is with him. There's pressure from people. There's pressure within himself. There's, you could say, pressure from society. And then there's individuals who are striking him down, but he's not destroyed. Someone said it this way. We're knocked down, but we're not knocked out. So he got a good one across the chin and he goes down, but he's not out of the fight. Turn ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and you see some of this. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 23. Because the Corinthians are so into comparing, Paul kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek, lets them know that he really has served Christ. Are these other people that you respect so much? Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number. He just lost count. Can you imagine? Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern from all the, for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? None of this was impressive to the Corinthians. Maybe we would look at that and be like, I could never serve like Paul. Paul's point isn't that we need to compare ourselves among ourselves. He says that's unwise but he's proving a point to the Corinthians. This isn't impressive to you, but this is how it has to be. You would read a list like that and you would say, it's almost like all of these people who don't even know him, even the whole world, the natural order is out to get him. Like there's this singular mind behind it trying to stop him. You think that might be true? Because he's carrying the true gospel really elevating Christ so that the power is not of him, but from God. He felt opposition from people. He was mugged. He was beaten. He was lashed. He was stoned. He had opposition from nature. There was the opposition of travel. It never stopped. There were robbers there. It was uncomfortable. There were hindrances on a personal level. Of He was skipping meals. He wasn't able to afford food. He didn't have lodging. He was cold. This was not a healthy man. He had internal, he had spiritual difficulties. The, when those that he cared for were spiritually weak, when false teachers crept into a church and they were gaining influence and he heard about it, he's trying to figure out how to address it. It weighs on him. There are church problems. There are leadership problems. There are coworker problems. He had all of this pressure and it's not about him. Paul viewed each of these not only as providential 
for him, but also essential to making him weak for God's strength to shine through him. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, I will therefore boast in what pertains to weakness so that the power is not from me, but from God. So what does this look like? People maybe who don't want to hear what you have to say about the gospel, but you're not silenced about it. It doesn't shut you up for good. Maybe you do, like Jesus said, maybe in wisdom you do need to say, okay, I'm free from the blood of that person. But you're not discouraged into silence about it. Maybe you're counseling someone and they won't take the counsel you give, but you keep loving them anyway. Maybe people criticize you and pressure you to quit, but you keep believing God has you where he has you and that he's with you to do what he's called you to do. These are the kinds of things that really are in your own strength unbearably hard. They are the kinds of things that make you want to quit, aren't they? But this is what happens to clay pots. This is the way that God wants it. This is the way it has to be so that the great power of the gospel is from God and not from us. Have you ever... Maybe you're putting things in the dishwasher and you, a dish slips out of your hand and you drop it and you wince and you expect it to shatter, but it doesn't break. How did that happen? That hit three bowls on the way down. Jen doesn't even need to know. Whew, okay. I'm just kidding. You expected it to break. This is what, this is what it is. Paul, everything about the circumstances of Paul's life, he should have shattered as a clay pot, but he didn't. Why? Because God was sustaining him. When God's servants are afflicted like this, the only explanation for the work of the word in them and the work of the word through them is that God's power is working through his word to rescue lost sinners. Praise the Lord when you see that. This also means the only thing that keeps a clay pot like you from shattering isn't your own self-determination. It's God. So draw on his resources. Draw near to him. But we should also remember, even then, we will only last for a time. None of us is indispensable. We won't last forever. But may the Lord help us to be faithful as long as he has for us to last in his service. And not to give up. God does this on purpose. His ministers do suffer so that the power of the gospel is from him and not from man. This is, I think you get an insight into how hard it was for Paul, but how hard it may be for God's people. But why does it have to be this way? How, maybe we could ask, how does the weakness of the messenger actually serve the message? Paul says in verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. You could say it this way, the frailty of Paul's experience, of Paul's life and his ministry, it validates the message while he preaches it. He's carrying around all this weakness and suffering 
so that the life of Jesus will be displayed in him. Notice, first of all, in verse 10, God plans this dying to be evident in his servants. And he's not talking about Jesus being re-crucified or anything. This isn't anything mystical or some teaching of scripture you've never heard of. I believe he's referring to Jesus did suffer at the hands of ungodly men who often were seeking to kill him. They wanted to, and maybe they were fearful and it wasn't the right time. They tried to, and they weren't able to. He was constantly exposed to death. He was always persecuted. Eventually, they did unjustly execute him. And what did Jesus say? A slave is not greater than his master. They persecuted me. They will also persecute you. That's what Paul is talking about. Just like they persecuted Jesus, maybe even more than Paul felt, they're also persecuting Paul. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Just like Jesus suffered, I am suffering. The constant exposure to physical suffering, to persecution, and to death. The way that God allowed Jesus to be exposed to that. God intends that that would be evident in the lives of those who preach Jesus as Lord. That they always be carrying about in their body the dying of Jesus. It's something that's happening in their lives because they carry the message of Jesus. So you could say it this way. All gospel ministers have some hardship which they have to endure because they serve the Savior who endured hostility of sinners against himself. We have to be like Jesus. This is God's plan. And it's God's plan that it be apparent always carrying about in the body. It's obvious to be seen. So you see that the suffering is suffering like Jesus. But what exactly does it do when we suffer? And look at the second half of verse 10. Lay your eyes on verse 10, and I'm going to read the second half of verse 11. See how similar they are. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. They're nearly identical. When you look at verse 10, if you could set them side by side on a piece of paper, in verse 10 it says, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Verse 11, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He's giving a parallel here, saying that God plans for this dying of the messenger to reveal the life that Jesus possesses. The life of Jesus may be manifested. What life is this? This is the life that Jesus has within himself. This is eternal life that never ends. John said it this way, in him, in the word, in Jesus was life. Do you know someone named Zoe? This is that word, Zoe, life. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Turn briefly, if you would, to John chapter 10. I was helped to understand this distinction between what Jesus gave to others and what he laid down in order to give it. John chapter 10, he's speaking to false shepherds of Israel who just sent out a recently healed person. He's really calling them out, comparing them with himself as the good shepherd. Look at John chapter 10, verse 10. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's the same word in English. It's different words in the original. Okay. Jesus himself has life, zoe, eternal life. And that cannot be taken away. That never ends. It never began. So when you have the life that Jesus himself possesses, you have eternal life, both in duration and in quality. It's an abundant life. But why does he say, I lay down my life for the shepherd of the sheep? This is actually a different word that he gave. He laid down his life. It's the word that we could translate soul. It's the more physical aspect of his life, the temporal from the time you're born to the time you die, to the time you die. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Look ahead at verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is suke. Look at verse 17. His soul, this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life or my soul so that I may take it up again. That life, that human life, began at a point in time, and it ended at the cross. He laid it down willingly. Look at verse uh, yeah, 17. I lay it down that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This is his soul, you could say. But look ahead at verse 28. What he gives is not like, like that physical life that began and ended. The life that he gives is something that he had all along. Something different entirely. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is eternal life that Jesus gives that is manifested back in 2 Corinthians. This is what is manifested through the suffering of the preacher of the gospel. The eternal life of Jesus that he bestows on those who believe in him. This is the good news, isn't it? That there's forgiveness of sins available through Jesus Christ and eternal life. God plans for the dying of the messenger to reveal this life that Jesus possesses and that he gives this eternal life that he has within himself. It's revealed, as Paul carries about in the body, the dying of Jesus. When Jesus was on earth, maybe I can explain it this way. He showed everyone that he had life in himself, didn't he? Everyone that he touched and that he healed, it was life-giving power to them. It was a, someone has called it a clean power. It didn't produce death and darkness. It shed light and it gave health and renewed energy. He brought people to life. He had life to give. But then he left the earth. And how is he going to continue to show that? He displays this same life through his messengers as they suffer for his sake. Of course, we tell people with our words that Jesus offers eternal life, but he shows it 
he shows that he has life to give through the suffering and the endurance of his messengers. So suffering as someone who preaches the gospel, that's not just a job hazard. Have you ever thought that? Well, he knew that when he was getting into the job. He knew it was dangerous. It's not just a job hazard. It's God's plan for how it has to be so that the power is of God. And Paul makes it clear how exactly our dying shows the world that Jesus has life. We mentioned that the second half of these verses was the same, but the first half is a little different. Look at verse 11. He specifies that who is it that is dying? It's we who have life, we who are living, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. It's not just because we're suffering for our own wrongdoing. It's actually for the sake of Jesus. But who is it that's doing it? It's we who have been given the life of Jesus. God allows this to happen to those who have eternal life. Because then it's obvious that Jesus is sustaining his messengers who are preaching eternal life in his name. So maybe you've asked yourself the question, why does it have to be so hard to live as a Christian and to maintain a Christian witness? Why does it require so much rejection? Why don't people just accept the truth? I'm just trying to help them. I'm telling them good news. The answer is that your dying reveals Christ's living. Because it reveals Christ living in you. So don't lose heart. You're suffering for Christ. God is using that to magnify the glory of the gospel, that Jesus does grant eternal life to those who trust in him. God does this on purpose, not because he's harsh, but because it gives him glory, but it's also for our good. And I think you see that as Paul closes this section. What's his summary? So death works in us, but what's the benefit for his hearers, his readers, but life in you? The benefit really gets passed on to those who hear that their confidence would not be in men, but in God who gives life. And I think you could actually say the, the benefit is twofold. It's the benefit to this church, but it's also the benefit to the lost around them. The suffering of a minister profits a church as they grow in grace, as the, the life of Jesus that they have because they're Christians is bearing fruit in their lives. Life is working in them. That's what Paul means. That's good for them. Paul's drawing a connection between his suffering and their growing. That encouraged him, and it, it should encourage you too when you see other people growing and being instructed in the truth and walking with God because of something God is doing in your life, God is something God is doing through your life. That should encourage you. But it's not just in the church. It's actually outside of the church. As life is working in the church at Corinth, the unbelievers in the city are seeing the church grow. The, the light is shining more brightly. More Corinthians are coming to Christ as Paul is suffering because the church is growing in grace. They're growing in the life of Christ. God was revealing the life of Christ through the church to the lost. So it's almost as if 
one person suffering becomes a seed and it falls into the ground and dies. But when it dies, it bears much fruit. That's the principle here. And it's not just Paul's physical death when he closed his eyes, breathed his last, his heart beat one final time, his brain stopped. It's not just then, it's actually in his life. He's carrying around this experience of death and it's bearing fruit in other people because the power is not of him. It's of God. It really is a remarkable thing what God can do with one Christian who suffers for his name's sake, isn't it? So don't just run because it's hard. Trust God that he's using the hardship. So why do we feel so much weakness, so much opposition, so little capability within ourselves? Because God sees it as essential for you to be weak so that the mighty power of God would be shown through you. There's a connection between your weakness and the life by which Jesus sustains you and the increasing power of your preaching of the gospel. How can you endure? I can't do it. The answer then has to be, you yourself have to return to the life-giving power of the gospel. You have to return to Christ and, and seek him for sustenance because only he has the life to give. Life, as Jesus said it, that springs up in you like a well of water. It is God's plan that his ministers suffer for his sake so that the power of the gospel would be in his hands, not our own. We're just clay pots, and God is gracious to use us at all. But how wonderful and wise he is to let us share the honor of suffering with Christ, both to honor him and to testify to others that Jesus does really have eternal life to give them. We preach that, and then as we suffer, our lives testify to that. And God is glorified because we are weak and he is strong and we can rely on him as we do his work. Let's pray. Father, help us to take fresh courage that you do sustain us. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on our own weaknesses and see that you bring us through them, you sustain us. We realize that that is your life working in us, even as we are perhaps sharing in your suffering. I pray that you would use our lives. Take our lives and let them be consecrated to you completely and use them as you would to bring forth fruit and working in other people's lives as you see fit. Help us to humble ourselves before you and to endure. Father, we know that you're wise and good and you don't make your children shed needless tears. But sometimes we get lost in the hardship and we forget. Help us to look up, help us to live by faith and to trust you and to obey you and to preach and carry this wonderful message, this great priceless treasure and to scatter it freely and boldly. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.